0: Uh, and uh, we had a change, kind of uh, amplification in the middle of the sermon, and as we were getting a lot of crackling, and then as I was trying to switch from one microphone to the other, it was amazing how many people in the first service wanted to tell me how to do it. <laughs> I, I, re- I reached for this microphone, they said, Don't take that one, take this one over here, and then they didn't think I would remember how to turn it on. Of course, I didn't turn this one on here before I came up here as well. So they, they, they've gotten some bad habits when I've been gone, thinking that <laughs> that... I'm the one supposed to be told what to do rather than you're supposed to be told what to do. But, um, but anyway, we had a good time this uh, the first service as we just uh, looked at God's Word and and shared together. Uh, the other thing that happened right before this service is, because Carol is ambidextrous, she can play both the organ and the piano, but uh, some of you who, ever, who arrive early might have noticed this happens seldom, but it does happen at times, where there is a There's a pedal or something that sticks on the organ, and the only way to unstick it is to go up to the top of this, uh, where the pipes are, and retool a a wire or something. The problem is, we've always felt that there is a need-to-know basis at the church. If you don't need to know, we're not going to tell you. Well... uh, just happened to be that devon's the only one who knows how to change the chord so we went up there trying to find it but we could not find it so the organ is not being played today not because of any philosophical or spiritual reason it's just that we can't play it makes a loud noise without being able to play the the notes so so things happen in life and just getting back from a cruise just uh, thinking about that did you hear about the one the cruise in italy where there was you know all kinds of things like that and i was told right between the services I always thought that that was a seldom experience. I mean, a, a, a irregular experience. It doesn't happen very much. And and someone was telling me, yeah, if you go on the internet and there's the uh, Cruises and Bruises, which is a great name for a a uh, internet site. And it, I guess it happens a lot more than you would imagine. That it's fairly regularly that those things um, have wrecks or whatever it might be. So um, that's great to know after a cruise, rather than before a cruise. But anyway, we had a great time and. And uh, there's a possibility that I might share a few things in the weeks to come about some experiences we had as we had opportunity to see God's beauty and creation uh, in our trip uh, with some of the people at, at Grace Hills Church. But as we begin this new year, and you, got, you had opportunity to begin it without me, I did have uh, the privilege of listening to both messages on the Internet. And just to remind you, if somehow you miss me or anybody else at Grace Hills Church, you can listen to us after the fact. If you go down to www.gracehills.com. So anyway, the sermons are on that. But this morning we began a series, and this is what our life groups will be studying as well, in the best sermon ever. Now the best sermon ever is not preached by a 21st century preacher, but a preacher in the first century, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why we can name it the best sermon ever. Many of you have always prayed that I would preach a better sermon, and we tried that during the last series as we were going through the New Testament, and we did get through a goal of studying every single book in the New Testament, all 27 of them. Of them. And I entitled a, a, a series or a, a message in the book of Hebrews a better sermon because of the, the use of the word better over and over and over again. And really that theme was the transition between all the messages of the Old Testament and the message of the New Testament, that we, we get the clearest understand of who God is as God became a man, and as Jesus came here to invite us to know who God is and enter into relationship with Him. Well, this morning we're going to be focusing on a passage of Scripture that's not a better sermon, but a best, the best sermon, because it's a sermon that's given to us in its greatest length as recorded in any of the four Gospels. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and in, in a few moments we'll be getting to that, but I'm going to give you a little backstory before we look at the story in the passage we want to look at this morning. Now if you looked at the outline, you'd say, well, Ma- Mike's still in his bad habits of every other message he preaches. He puts a lot of stuff in his, in his outline. Well, this is all just introduction, but basically today we're not going to study an entire book. We're going to look at one particular verse. But before we get to that one verse, I want to share a few other things as well. As we think about the, this, the, the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's, really, it's really a message in which God wants us to fully understand what it means to know Him and to follow Him. We said earlier in the service that our purpose as a church, which is really the purpose of any church that wants to be Christ-centered and Bible-centered, is, is to honor God by helping more people become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, as we say that, we don't want it to be simply a cliché. To help other people become anything, you have to be what you want them to be. You have to know what they need to know, or you need to be what they need to be to help them go down that path. So for us to help other people become fully devoted followers of Christ, we need to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And as I think about that, I I try to think in in its most simplest terms. uh, I'm not that profound, but you're going to hear a very profound statement, not very complicated. What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? A fully devoted follower of Christ follows the King and the words of the King. That's really what it's all about. You could put it this way. A fully devoted follower of Christ follows Christ and the words of Christ and both need to be true because we need to recognize that jesus physically is not here so we can't play simon says with him where he makes the motions and we repeat the motion we can't play that tag game like children used to do follow me and you go wherever that person runs or jumps and tries to do everything they do because he's physically not here so we follow him primarily by following his words now we have the power of the spirit to enable us to do that but that's what it means simply to be a follower of christ Uh, Jesus kind of put it this way in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so that's the pattern for us to understand. He also said in Matthew 4, 19 and 20, And he said, And then follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And so as we think about following his words, hearing his words and then following him, there needs also to be a sense of urgency about doing that. We should not be procrastinators as it relates to God's message to us. If you've been a parent or you've been a child, all of us have been children, uh, we have been in a role in which people have tried to tell us what to do, particularly parents. And I had that experience with four of our children. And, and I know this will come to a shock to you, but sometimes when I would say things to my children, they wouldn't necessarily do it, what? Immediately. You know, I'd ask them to do something, and they thought they could do it whenever they wanted to. And, and you know, that can become a habit in life. And, and so as we think about God speaking to us, once we understand what he wants us to do, then we need to do it now. We need to do it immediately. In fact, the Gospel of Mark really has that theme because the word immediately is used over and over and over again. When, when they were called to follow Jesus, once they understood who he was, they left their nets and followed him, and they did it When? Immediately, So what does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? Follower of Christ is to follow Christ or follow the King and he'd follow the words of the King. But as we think about that, what I wanted to do was to give you a little bit, again, of the backstory of, of the, the Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever as recorded in Matthew. So what came before Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And, and really, Matthew presents Jesus as the King. And he presents them not only in terms of this is who he is, but why we should believe that he is. And if there was a king, a king of kings and lord of lords that would come to this earth, we would say, well, what would be some of the things that would indicate that he is who he claims to be or who others claim him to be? Well, one in Matthew chapter 1, it would be not too surprising that the king would come in a, in a powerful way. And so in chapter 1, we have the king's miraculous birth. You know, that's what Christmas is all, all about. It's all about recognizing that God invaded history and he did it in a miraculous way by way of the virgin birth. That makes sense. Secondly, if if he is a king, then then a king ought to be honored or worshipped. And we see even in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men came and they worshipped him. They gave him gifts worthy of a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now in in Matthew chapter 3, we have what happens in most kings or people put in positions of authority there's an inauguration and the king is inaugurated Uh, jesus was both fully man and fully god and as man he grew in in stature and in favor with god and men and in wisdom as well and so those silent years between probably age 12 toward age 30 we don't know a whole lot about what jesus did other than he he matured as a physical being But there was a time in which he was inaugurated, and that was at his baptism. And not only do we have the the statement of John the Baptist, who was the messenger fulfilling the prophecy of the king to come, we have the the announcement of the Heavenly Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit of God descending as a dove demonstrated that the Trinity had now manifested itself in identifying uh, Jesus as the Son of God and so as we have the miraculous birth we have uh, the king worshiped we have the king inaugurated and then fourth we have the king tested and he's know, anybody in a position of authority uh, there's going to be a time where the people who are to be under that person's authority will will begin to question is is this someone i really need to listen to or hear or respond to and and so jesus was tested and his testing was done by the evil one uh, lucifer satan the devil and we have a a description of that in Matthew chapter four, and then toward the end of chapter four, we have Jesus beginning his ministry, and we see him gathering the multitudes, and he gathers them by doing the miraculous and great healings as well as teachings, and the people come to hear him. And then at that point, Jesus now pointedly begins to speak to them, and we need to understand about Jesus that Jesus. He could gather a crowd like no one could gather a crowd. I mean, it would be so great that the people press around him, he'd have to go out on a boat, otherwise he would just be pushed into the water. He'd have to go on a mountaintop because the people would surround him in mass. And this is the occasion in which he speaks to the disciples, but also speaks to the multitude around them. And he now speaks to them about what it means to be a truly, fully devoted follower of Christ. And so as, as we begin this series was well, simply the king speaks, and when the king speaks, his subjects are to what? Listen. To listen. And as he begins this message, interesting enough, he, he begins it in a way in which he wants them to understand that people come to him on his terms. And your outline, I put it this way. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament or New Covenant. A covenant is an agreement made by one party to which the other party involved could accept or reject, but could not change. The new covenant was ratified with Christ's blood and you must come to him on his terms. Now, most of the places in America, I mean, unless you go on eBay and all that kind of stuff now, the internet's changed some of that stuff. If you go into a store, they set the price and you decide whether you want to buy it or not buy it. Purchase it or not purchase it. I mean, there are some places where you can bargain a little bit on, like for cars and things like that, but a lot of places, you know, they would be offended if you tried to haggle the price in America. That's kind of our culture. But in a variety of places in the world, they, they not only uh, are not surprised if you haggle, they would be, um, they'd almost be miffed because it's a game to them. They, they want you to, to, to bargain and, and try to uh, get a price that you want to pay What's really the price they always wanted to pay because they set it way too high in that whole process. When, when we come to God, let, let's just be clear, we don't bargain with God. He, he sets the price. He sets the terms. We either take it or we, we leave it. And, and so as he begins this message, he, he's laying out the terms. And he's always laid out the terms, and he's put it in a variety of different ways. In Matthew 16, 24, he said it this way. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You mean if I come to Christ, I have to deny myself? I have to be willing to to live this life even though it might cost me my life? That's what a cross did. It cost you your life. And it's not only a life and death issue, it's a present day experience. I need to follow you day by day. In fact, Luke adds the word daily follow me. Yeah, that's the terms. You have to change ownership, deny yourself and put the king on the throne. Uh, Jesus put it this way in, in John chapter 3, verse 3. But Jesus answered and said to him, he's speaking to Nicodemus at the moment, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, isn't there any other avenue? Isn't there any other way? You know, all roads lead to Rome. You know, isn't there a number of different roads to heaven? No, you've got to be born again. The two words most assuredly translate the same word, which is repeated twice in that text in John chapter 3. Verse 3, it's a word that probably most of you who have used many, many times, or heard used many times, it's the word Amen. Or, if you want to translate in the Greek or the Hebrew, which is interesting, it, it, it stays the same way. It's the word Amen. Most assuredly, he said, Amen, Amen. I want to say to you, unless you're born again, you shall not experience the kingdom of God. Now, the word Amen in the Greek means truly. In fact, that's how it's translated in some of your Bibles. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you. He is saying, Most assuredly, this is, <laughs> this is how it is. This is how it is. And so as we think about following Jesus Christ, we come to him on his terms. And we have to qualify according to his plan. All right, the King's Sermon begins. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And partly what I'm going to try to do is explain very simply who, who gets into the kingdom and who gets blessed or who is truly happy in his kingdom. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 begins with these words, and then we center into his first statement in the message, which is, I guess you could say, his introduction to his message in in verse 3. Matthew 5 begins this way, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now, I hope you got that. I've I've said this before on Sundays. If you, if you look at Jesus, particularly in this text, you find out that when he preached, he sat, which probably implies every else what? Stood. Now, don't you think we ought to be much more of a biblical church and on Sundays I ought to sit and you stand? It was a, it was a position of a university where he was was the teacher and they came to to be at his feet. Jesus was going to be speaking into the hearts of the people that day. And it was interesting that there was a group of people, this is all all introduction now, the message hasn't started, so just relax. No, this is the message. Is that as people came to hear him that day, they were like people today. They, They all had their agendas and they had all their their uh, assumptions, presuppositions about what what really mattered to God and and what it meant to really know God, to be part of what God's program was all about. And, and you had people who were uh, in camps. You had the Sadducees who who weren't really sure about the resurrection, so they, they were kind of interested in the now. What, do, what are you going to do for me now? Don't talk to me about the uh, you know, the heavens and all the glories of heaven. I'm not sure there is one, so I want to know what can you do for me now. And you had the Pharisees who... Who wanted to earn their way to God, and they were really kind of committed to the resurrection, so they were kind of looking for the hereafter. But they, they, uh, they thought they could earn their way to God. And then you had the zealots, and the zealots were all—they were all tied up in politics. Now, none of you are ever tied up in politics, right? You really don't have any Yeah, but they were really tied up in politics. They—they they decided that the the key to to a happy life, and again, we're talking about being blessed, was to somehow get the political thing right, overthrow Rome and get them back in power. And if they got themselves back in power, then uh, it would be a land filled with milk and honey again. And then you had the Essenes. The Essenes, they were in some ways maybe the most spiritual of the group. They, they really felt they needed to separate themselves from all the sins of the people in their world. And they were kind of monastic in many ways. And, and they were very, uh, very careful about um, being... Compromised by the world, even the religious world that day, and then you just had the rank and file people, the 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 independents, you know, the, the, the just the people out there, and for most of them, there wasn't a huge middle class. There was a rich class and a religious class, and then there were just poor people. Okay, and and they looked at their lives and they said, "It's hopeless. What do I got? There? I, I I I'm not I'm not strong enough to be a zealot. I I, I don't want to get in this war and try to fight the." Political battles, and, and I, I'm not I'm not religious enough to be a Pharisee, and the Sadducees that does not sound very good. I, the, my only hope for life is there's a better life after this, and the Essenes, the uh, I, I got to put food on the table. I can't be monastic, and, and they were just thinking that I, what, what hope is there for me if I can get just the crumbs from God? I'll, I'll feel I'll feel great, awesome. And, and so to this, he, he begins to speak into these people's lives, and he says, I, I want you to know that there's an opportunity to be blessed. In fact, this opportunity is really for everybody. In fact, no matter how you're coming to God, whatever you feel you're trusting in or you feel that you can't trust, that barrier between you, and God, you need to understand there's a way. And I, I, I want to I I pound that into you. That those who you think are, are most advantageous in this world to connect with the kingdom of God Might not be. And those who think that they are hopeless, they might really be the people who can have most hope because they recognize their need. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the one verse that we're going to look at today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the last part of them would just be totally uh, motivated. I I want to be part of God's rule. I want to be part of what God has planned for people who are going to be under his umbrella of relationship. I I, I want to be in his kingdom. I want to be in that place called heaven. I I want to be part of that. Well, how can I be part of that? Well, you you need to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And then he even added that first phrase, if you're poor in spirit, you'll be blessed. blessed." the word blessed there is an interesting word, blessed. It's a word that has been misunderstood by people that day as well as today. When when we think a person is blessed, uh, we might think in a variety of different venues. We might think a person is blessed because they have musical talent, or we think a person is blessed because uh, they're very athletic, or we might blessed because they have a great mind they might be blessed because of certain accomplishments that they've been able to achieve in this world or maybe they've been blessed with financial resources or maybe they've been blessed with a with a variety of things we look at something external and and, and there's nothing fully uh, in error thinking that way because any good gift that we get uh, experience in this life comes from above but jesus was taking this a step further he said, I'm not just talking about externals, as most people do. Uh, in your outline, I put it this way blessed means happy, fortunate, blissful, or probably a better word for us related to it would be joyful. There were a couple Greek writers that really kind of got it wrong in, in terms of the depth of the meaning. Homer used it for being wealthy, and Plato used it for being successful. Now, it's you are blessed if you're wealthy, you are blessed if you're successful. But you can be wealthy and successful and not be blessed. There are a lot of unhappy people, unjoyful people who have all kinds of financial resources who are very, very successful. Uh, Probably we've all heard that cliche that, that people like to, you know, as they begin life, they want to climb up the ladder to success. But some people, when they climb up the ladder to success, when they get to the top, they realize the ladder was on the wrong wall. That success did not bring them happiness. Now, there is a blessedness in being successful. There is a blessedness in being wealthy. But if there's nothing happening internally, then you're not blessed. A lot of people win the lottery, don't become happier. They become more neurotic. What does it mean? It means having inward contentment and not to be affected by circumstances. It's that person who is is joyful no matter what's going on. It's that person who is content. And... You know, it's, it's not based on a good hair day or any other type of day. It's based on what's going on on the inside, not on the outside. It is a state of joy and wellness of soul. Uh, that's what Paul put in Philippians four eleven through 13. It's, it's kind of encapsulating that verse that most of us know as far as verse 13, which is, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in verses 11 through 12, he's saying, I, I've learned how to be content in that which I have, whether I'm in abundance or I'm suffering need how do you do that? Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's being blessed. Uh, I didn't put it in your outline, but another way you could just simply say it, Blessedness in terms of what Jesus wanted to communicate to his listeners that day was, uh, it, it's the favor of God. Uh, you just feel like you're in God's favor. Now again... And this is, this is for all of us here. I mean, if we're really honest, there are times when things are going really poorly in our life. And, and, and if we were to be asked by someone and we were to give an honest response, do you feel like you're really favored by God? You're in God's favor right now, that you're really blessed by God right now? The emotional response would be No. Uh, that, that's just, that's just the, the human, natural response. And, and the only way to get out of that is to, to look at, again, that which is most important. And, and really, where is the source of joy? It's not in our circumstances. It, it, it's the one who controls our circumstances. It's understanding that that, that God never leaves us. That His presence is always abundantly there. And that God not only has a plan for us now, but in the future. And that we can rest and trust in Him. So as we begin this new year, in fact, let me give you, some of you struggle with verses. Okay, This is a doable verse for free this week. Uh, Memorize this verse this week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And after we finish this morning, just throughout the week, do some self-examination. Am I really a person that could self-describe himself or herself as a person who is poor in spirit? Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's just break it down very simply. Poor means to, sh- literally, means to shrink or to beg or to be destitute, or to probably put it in a better way, it's a person who recognizes that they are in need. If I'm poor financially, if I have a bill to pay that I don't have resources to pay, I, I-, I know I'm in need. I know I am, I'm destitute. I am, I'm shrinking back because I, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, and I, and I'm desperately in need of of help or provision from an outside source because I've, I'm at the, at the limit of what I can do. And, and people who are in real poverty, it's not just uh, not being able to buy the latest toy or tool. It, it's, it's a person who is in real need for the, the, the essentials of life. And, and what, what Jesus was saying to them, look it, I, I don't care whether you're on the top of the financial world or at the bottom, if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, you need to see yourself as in desperate need to the point where you are, you are begging God for his rescue. That's what it means to be, in, to be poor, is to, to see your desperate need. And of course it 's combined with that second point in that in in the spiritual realm. spirit means the immaterial and contrasts with the material the inward part of us it is who we really are on the inside you know Paul put in Romans chapter seven that within us there's, there's, there dwells no good thing and in, in, in that we the things we want to do we can 't things we don't want to do we do and, and who's going to who's going to free us up from this whole experience of struggling and our in our, in, our, in our life. And, and, and that's a great place to be because it points us to the only one who can help us in our struggle, and that's the living God. You know, there's a lot of ways to present the gospel, and we have recently tried to make clear the ABCs of the gospel. Hope, hopefully you, you know a, a, an explanation of the message of Christ clearly, but the ABCs are, A, you need to admit your need. And then turn from your sin. What does that mean? It means you recognize you can't do it on yourself. That you you recognize you are poor in spirit. That spiritually you have nothing to offer to God. And the only way that your your poverty in spirit can be made rich is for God to give you the riches that are found in Christ. That your sin is is living your life on your own power. It's living in rebellion against God. It's, It's living thinking that you can do it on yourself. And you turn from that sin... So the, all the other sins can be covered as well. No one ever comes to God until at the first they admit their need and are willing to turn from their sin of living their life on their own. It's the same way. No, no one ever goes to a physical doctor unless they think they're what? They're sick. You know, no one cries out for financial help unless they know they're, they're poor. They're in need. And then, that's the A, admit your need and turn from your sin. The B, believe that Jesus fully paid the penalty for your sins and rose again. That your poverty caused by your sin can be forgiven by the Christ who came to die for the penalty of your sin and then rose again. And then C, commit. Commit to follow Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior of your life. Surrender yourself fully to Him. Well, Jesus began his sermon with with calling them to experience blessedness, to experience the favor of God, to experience a joy that is not dependent upon circumstances, to a, to a life where you see the purpose of life in the midst of things being a mess in life, to, to experience a life that you felt was only reserved for those who were favored physically by God, who were filled with riches or... Or talents or gifts or whatever and he said this is this is for everyone what do you want in 2012 personally what would we want in 2012 for us collectively sometimes i'm you know i'm kind of a goal-oriented person in a variety of different ways Um, and i can honestly say i i don't think i've ever reached any of my goals Partly because my goals are way up here. Now, I've had some things where I've kind of got closer, with it, which gives you a sense of I'm making progress. And sometimes, particularly, that kind of gets from reading the Old Testament and New Testament. I mean, this is a pretty challenging book. And there are some things in here that can be discouraging because, man, I just haven't got that, you know, wired yet in my life. But on the other side of the coin, there are some things in the scripture that are available for all of us because it's on the lower shelf. See, this is doable. And the only thing that will not make it doable is not willing to make it work in your life. See, all of us in 2012 can experience the favor of God if we're willing to. All of us can experience individually and collectively the favor of God if we're willing to be people who recognize our desperate need for Him to rule and reign in our life. See, this is available for everyone. Anyone can be poor in spirit if they humble themselves before God. Now, it's, again, it's, it's both sides of the coin. It's available for us all, but it's not always easy, is it? because pride or self-sufficiency or distractions whatever whatever might be come in so easily. But, but we can be a blessed people, a blessed church if we come to Him desperately in our need, being poor in the inward part of who we are. Remember what uh, he was told when David was chosen as king and he was the most unlikely candidate? And that's really what Jesus was trying to say to these people here. I know you feel like you're unlikely to be blessed by God, but I want you to know that that God is, you know, 1 Samuel 16, 7, God does not look at man like men look at other men. Now, men look at men on their outward appearance, but I look at people from the inwardness of their heart. And so he chose David, who was the most unlikely of all the sons of Jesse, because he looked at David's heart. God wants us to, to be blessed people, favored by God, experience the joy that only he can give despite whatever circumstances we're going through by recognizing our need to be poor in spirit so that he can make us rich in the spirit. Same experience, remember Solomon? Remember Solomon uh, who really, again, saw both sides of life when he was asked to say, uh, by God, what would you want for me? And He chose well, and He chose the wisdom of God. Now, he was the wisest man on earth in that time, and in many ways, God blessed him not only with wisdom, but every other way—wine, women, and wealth. But what he did is he strayed from God, and at the end of his life, even though he had been blessed so much externally, he he wrote that message in Ecclesiastes: "Vanity, vanity, all is vanity." Now, that's not kind of a, not an easily understood word in our language. It really means futility. Futility, futility, all this futility. Because he got so focused on the gifts of God and he forgot the giver of the gifts. And so he was led astray. He forgot about his desperate need to follow the wisdom of God. He knew the wisdom of God, but he wasn't following the wisdom of God because he, quite frankly, didn't feel like he needed to follow the wisdom of God because look at all that he had doesn't matter whether you have a little or a lot. You want to just rely upon God and not yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now really, this is the first step in the message of the, the king who spoke on that Sermon on the mountain. And I've got to throw this in because my time is out and I was going to throw it in earlier. If you ever, particularly preacher types like me, I go, you know, if this is the best sermon ever... And if you were just to read it the entirety in one sitting or standing, it would take about 10 minutes to preach it if you read it. Okay, that's the best sermon preached ever, 10 minutes. Then why am I spending 50 minutes on a Sunday morning preaching? Shouldn't I just preach 10-minute sermons? Anyone want to say amen? Amen. (laughs) All right. Some of you, now, is that a trick question? <laughs> is he taking notes? <laughs> All right. let, me, let me throw this in by well debriefing that, that possibility that the best sermon ever is always a 10 minute sermon. If you were to look at Matthew 13, right around verse 52, Jesus uh, had the multitudes with him, and it said, uh, We better send them away because they have been with me for third, three days. So I prefer to take that as the model. Three-day sermon, 24 hours times three—that was a 72-hour sermon. Don't you feel blessed? You only get 45 minutes. You know, uh, you know this was this is a message that's the longest recorded message of of Jesus. It's probably a message that was in uh, kind of Reader's Digest. It was the it was the condensed version, because quite frankly, if you were to leave your town for hours and hours to you know, jump on a, a boat in the Sea of Galilee or to walk miles and miles to get to Jesus, would, would you want to be there just for 10 minutes? Said, I want more, I want more. He gave them more. But what we have is that we have kind of the Abraham Lincoln uh, Gettysburg Address version of it because there's so much depth within it. And that's why we can all week just reflect on that one phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. And try to, try to see the implication for our lives. And how, that, how that should invade how we think and live and our attitudes and our actions. Uh, to put it another way, it, it's humility. Humility is the first step in life with God. If you don't humble yourself before God, you will never know God. And, and In Matthew 18, he called the children to come to me because they had nothing to offer him. And Revelation 3, verses 16 and 17 talks about those who thought they were rich and wealthy and they actually were the poorest of the poor. What is humility? You can phrase it so many different ways, but humility results when our focus is on the Lord and on others and not ourselves. It's pretty close to that Sunday School definition of joy. Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. It's recognizing that you are in desperate and I'm in desperate need to depend upon him and not myself. So what's the takeaway this this Sunday? Are we listening and taking the first step in our walk with God? And it's a step that we have to go back to daily to say, God, I'm in desperate need to reply upon you and not myself because I am poor in my own spirit. And I'm only rich when I'm following after your spirit, as I try to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. If I pray as we encounter the words of Jesus in this message, delivered on a, a hill and above the Sea of Galilee, that we might not just hear the words, but we might to respond to them in obedience, and and not only in the external but also in the internal commitment to you. Help us to be a people that rely upon you, and show you to others. And we praise in Christ's name, Amen. As we close this morning, we're going to say.